the uh, book of Zechariah. And uh, this afternoon we want to look at serving a holy God. Zechariah chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. In fact, uh, we'll look at the whole chapter. Now, so-called Christianity today has minimized the problem of guilt by portraying God as a very tolerant uh, God of sinners and by viewing ourselves, you know, we're not such bad folks. There's a lot of people that are a lot worse off than we are. And God is often looked at as a good buddy in the sky or a grandfatherly type of uh, person who would uh, be nice to you and be kind to you. And uh, he might sigh about sin, but he'd never get angry. He'd never deal severely with his children. And thanks to the insights of Christian psychology today, we know that the, uh, the high calling of Christians is to love ourselves and build up our self-esteem. As a result, it is thought by many that God chose them because of the great potential that he saw in them. But you know it's important that we form our view of God and ourselves from Scripture. Not from the prevailing view of the times. You know, when we examine Scripture, we find that God is far more holy than we ever imagined. And we are far more sinful than we ever fathomed. <clears throat> Let's suppose you're uh, a guy that works on a car. Uh, Jason's not here today. He's still in Nebraska licking his wounds, having torn apart his engine of his pickup, Jason Armstead, that is, um, five times now. I have advice for him, but you know, I know he won't take it. So anyway, <clears throat> suppose you're working on your car, and your wife is inside working on a brand new white dress. And she calls you out and says she needs help with the zipper on the back of her white dress. Now, if you've ever done any work on a car, you know that it's pretty hard not to get a little, little dirty, right? A little grease on your hands, a little dirt. So how could you possibly help your wife in that situation? And that hypothetical situation is real and even a serious matter, even though we chuckle at it. How can defiled sinners like us serve a holy God? Now, the Jews to whom Zechariah ministered felt the reality of that question. They had just returned from the Babylonian captivity which had taken place because of their uh, nation's gross, persistent, unrepentant sin. And now there's a remnant that's back in the land attempting to rebuild the temple and reestablish proper worship of God, but the past was there to haunt them. 
As anyone who truly knows God will testify, when you try to serve God, your conscience kicks into high gear. Who do you think you are to be able to share the gospel or teach the Bible to anyone else? And so we think, someday, yeah, someday, when I get my life together, I'll serve God then. But not now. And so in a practical question that faces all of God's people is, how can a sinner such as I serve a holy God? Now, here we have Zechariah's fourth night vision, and it answers that question. It showed the returning remnant that God would cleanse the nation, would restore them as priestly people before him, and he would remove their defilement so that they could again serve him. And as with most of Zechariah's visions, it was designed to give hope and encouragement to the Lord's chosen people. And before we uh, apply this text to ourselves or even on an individual level, which will be the thrust of our message here, we need to understand that the proper interpretation of Zechariah 3 is national and prophetic in, in uh, scope. We have Joshua as the high priest. He's representative of all the nation of Israel. And the picture here is God restoring his people corporately to their place as, a, as kingdom priests and a holy nation. And the ultimate fulfillment of that still awaits the Messiah's second coming. But the vision had an immediate application to the people there at that time rebuilding the temple to show them that they were not laboring in vain. And it also applies to us who are seeking to build God's living temple. How can we as sinners serve a holy God? And so we learn that God cleanses sinners through Christ on the basis of His grace, and then He uses them to serve Him as they walk in His ways. Notice, first of all, cleanse, cleansing based on grace. God cleanses sinners on the basis of His sovereign grace, not on the basis of their merit. We don't deserve it. Some professing Christians try to serve God as a way to work off their guilt. But any idea that we're going to work off or pay for our guilt through some good works or penance or purgatory undermines God's grace. And that's undeserved favor. Paul explains in Romans 4, 4 and 5, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And so Paul boldly states, it is not God justifies those who work hard and earn it. Rather, he's justifying the ungodly. And it's by his grace. Now, Joshua had no merit of his own. Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest. And his name means Jehovah saves. And he sees him standing before the angel of the Lord, who is identified in verse 2 as the Lord. And as we see, have seen the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, 
is Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate incarnate form. Uh, the Hebrew expression standing before is used of priests standing before the Lord to minister. So the picture is that Joshua is attempting to minister before the Lord in a priestly capacity. But he's clothed with filthy garments. And those filthy garments represent his own sins and the sins of his nation. And this gives Satan, whose name means accuser or adversary, the grounds to attack him. Let's go back and read verse 1 of chapter 3. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And then notice verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. That word filthy means manure covered. We could, that's the nicest way I could think to say it. Ever been on a farm? You ever worked on a farm around a pig pen? Or how about the staging area of a milk parlor? I've got a little bit of experience with that. I worked for my brother who was a dairy farmer for about, oh, off and on a couple of weeks and then, you know, here in time when I was much younger. And one of the responsibilities we had after he had milked about 60 of his cows, which he had all named, and he knew every one of them by name as they came through and milked about three of them at a time. Cows are not the most cleanly things as they come into the milking parlor. And they don't live, leave that staging area very clean either. It needs to be cleaned up. You picture a farmer who's been cleaning the barnyard and his overalls are covered with manure. And he begins to smell a little bit, right? And without bathing or without changing his clothes, he walks into church. That's how Joshua appeared before God in this vision. You'd say, something smells in here. <laughs> I think, and pigs are worse than cows, by the way. We lived uh, out in the country for a little while, about a quarter mile upwind of a pig farm. Wonderful, wonderful fragrance. Well, you may wonder, why didn't he put on his finest clean robes before he went to minister to the Lord? Perhaps he did. But what, he, what looked clean to men on earth did not look so clean when it came to the brilliant light of God's holy presence. When we compare ourselves with ourselves, our good deeds may seem adequate to commend us to God, but you know what? In God's sight, even our most righteous deeds are as filthy rags, as Isaiah said in six, Isaiah 64, 6. We are as filthy rags. And if we come before God on the basis of any human merit, we are doomed from the start. We have nothing to offer God except filthy, manure-covered deeds. 
Now, in the vision, Satan here is standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him, and he's not, uh, he's got a good case uh, because Joshua did not dress properly for the court. In Revelation 12 and verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of our brethren, uh, who accuses them before our God day and night. He doesn't need to do a lot of homework, does he? To prepare for his case. He just says, hey, look at, look at so-and-so Christian down there. <laughs> and he looks at their sin, he points to their sin and said, this man does not deserve to be your child. He does not deserve to get into heaven. And we don't deserve. And so Satan says, he doesn't deserve to get into heaven. He doesn't deserve to serve you. And then he says, I rest my case. Now there's a couple of practical observations here. Number one, there's a distinction between Satan's accusations and the Holy Spirit's conviction. When we walk in the light of God's Word, His Spirit will often graciously convict us of wrong thoughts, of attitudes, of words, or behavior. The Holy Spirit will say, you know, the way you snapped at your wife and kids this morning did not reflect patience and kindness of Christ. And we would be mistaken to label those inner promptings of the Holy Spirit as accusations of Satan. Because it's the Lord putting His finger on a sin that I need to confess and to turn from. I need to ask forgiveness both from the Lord and from my family for my sinful behavior. I need to apply the shed blood of Christ to my heart in that instance. But I, if I have truly done that, and still feel guilt and accusation, well, that's not from the Lord. That's from the enemy. So how do we deal with this? Well, num number two then, our defense is not our own merit. We cannot defend ourselves against Satan's accusations by saying, hey, look what I've done. But we only let the Lord defend us. Joshua didn't pipe up and say, now, hey, hey, wait a minute, Satan. I'm not such a bad guy. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anyone. I'm a regular in synagogue attendance. I pay my tithes. I even serve God as a priest. No, Joshua didn't say a word because he could see and he could smell his own filthy garments. He was guilty as charged. And the only way to answer the devil when he brings up your sins is to know that you are under Jesus' blood and say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Take it up with the Lord. If his shed blood is not sufficient to pay for my sins, then I'm doomed. And like Joshua, we all stand guilty as charged and with no merit of our own. Now, I want you to notice here how the Lord defended Joshua. Notice God defends his choice. Again here in verses 2 and 3, the Lord did not rebuke Satan by pointing out Joshua's finer qualities. He didn't read a list of Joshua's good deeds uh, that he had done over the years. No, instead the Lord rebukes the devil on the basis of something the devil cannot contend with. 
Because the devil lies in, uh, uh, and uh, uh, his, his accusations lie in the very nature or his, uh, uh, his defense, God's defense, lies in the very nature uh, of, of God as the sovereign of the universe. And so God points Satan to his sovereign choice of Israel. Jerusalem is uh, mentioned there, and that stands for Israel. And it's mentioned rather than Joshua personally because he represents the nation in his vision, but clearly God's choice of the nation included his choice of specific individuals in Israel, such as Joshua. And so we see here that Joshua had no merit of his own. Rather, God cleansed him according to his, his choice. Notice thirdly, sin is re- sin removed and clean garments given. Verse 4. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from me, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head, so that they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And so the Lord is commanding, Take away those filthy garments and put on some clean robes. And at this point, Zechariah gets so excited that he gets involved by asking them to, to put a clean mitre or headdress, maybe a, a turban like a headdress upon his head. And that refers to the linen turban that the priest wore uh, with a gold plate on the front of it with the inscription, Holy to the Lord. And that's a picture of the truth that when God cleanses a sinner, he not only takes away his sin, but he imputes to him the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we stand before God, not in our own good deeds, but in the righteous deeds of Jesus Christ, imputed to our account. It's not a lifelong process of God infusing enough righteousness into us that, well, eventually we'll qualify. Some religions teach that. No, it's a judicial decision on God's part that takes place an instant as the clothing of Joshua here pictures. God justifies the guilty sinner by grace alone, through Christ alone, received by faith alone, and our good deeds have nothing at all to do with it. Well, that's good. So sin is removed and clean garments given. That brings us to the cleansing sinners through Christ. Now the angel of the Lord, who is Christ, is there to defend Joshua from Satan's attack. Joshua passively lets Christ be his total help and hope for acquittal. But also in verses 8 and 9, the Lord explains to Joshua that he and his friends who are sitting there with him are men wondered at. Look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch, and behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, when it says here, 
The men wondered at, that's a phrase that means they are a sign of a future event. And the Lord gives uh, them the prophecy that he's going to bring my servant, the branch, and he's going to set before Joshua the stone, which has seven eyes and an inscription that God will engrave on it. So look at the branch, first of all. My servant, the branch. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Branch is, the branch is a familiar figure of the Messiah. Isaiah used that figure to predict his first coming as Savior. Remember in Isaiah 11 and verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. In Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, it speaks of Christ coming as king to this earth. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And then there's a stone. The stone, most uh, scholars would agree, which also refers to the Messiah in line with a number of other biblical references. The seven eyes uh, are there, probably refer to the omniscience of the Messiah, although some would interpret them to refer to God's eyes looking on the stone from the outside, which would point to God's loving protection on it. But the imagery of the stone means that Christ is the foundation of the true temple and also the one who will crush his opponents uh, in the coming judgment. And so the engraving on the stone is difficult to interpret. Now, this is one idea of how this might have looked in a vision. You have upon the seven eyes, the stone doesn't have the eyes in it, but they're, they're looking on the stone. Uh, it may point to the stone, and but it points to the stone. It's a precious stone. Uh, though the servant branch and stone, the Lord declares that he will remove the iniquity of the land one day. Uh, referring both to the day of the cross and when Christ atoned for sins of the people and the future day of salvation for Israel that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 11. But the point is that God removes our sin entirely through the work of Christ on the cross. And not only any good works that we, not through any good works that we would add. And so that's why I don't know if the engraving said grace or not, but it sure sounds like grace to me. And so God cleanses the guilty sinners by his grace, apart from his own merit through Christ alone. And this remains, there remains one point which we, we can touch on here, and that is God uses cleansed sinners to serve him. Go back to verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if, if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then shalt thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. Now, back in verse 2, it said that the Lord's description of Joshua was as a brand plucked from the fire. That, the only reason to rescue a stick from the fire, you know, you're going to build a fire, uh, one of these uh, nice fires that you enjoy in the evening, and someone puts in a stick, oh, don't put that stick in there, that one's a good stick, I can use that. Maybe you have some use for that stick. And it means here that God saves his people uh, uh, for his purpose, that they would serve him 
as believer priests before him. And the text here mentions both the requirement for and the results of service. First of all, the requirement is to walk in God's ways. Now, although God cleanses us apart from any merit, his grace is never an excuse to, for loose living. You know, a person who knows that God has graciously rescued him from the fire will not just jump back into the flames. The one who's been clothed with the righteousness of Christ will not just jump back in the mud. And as those cleansed by God, we should always seek to be clean vessels, fit for the Master's use. Whenever we sin, we must apply Jesus' blood to our hearts in order to be clean for God to use us in his service. The requirement is to walk in God's ways. The results are access to God and blessing. And the priest who walked in God's ways would govern his house, would change, or be in charge of his courts and have free access to him. Now, the keeping of God's house in the courts refers to the duties of the Old Testament's priests in guarding the temple from defilement. There's a phrase here, give thee places to walk. That means the comings and the goings, referring to the ready access to God that the priests would have. And even as the angels standing there had, and the picture here in verse 10 of everyone inviting his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree was an expression picturing God's people at peace and amply supplied. Look at verse 10. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. The application for us is that God will pour out his abundant blessings on those who walk in his ways. Those who minister as priests, and we're all priests, we don't have a priest uh, to go to because we have free access to God. As a New Testament believer, we are believer priests. And although this will not ultimately be fulfilled until the millennium, we can experience kind of a foretaste of it now. When we're right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, walking in holiness through him, we will be at peace in his house in our homes, and with our neighbors. Peace with God is the key for peace with one another. And so the question is, are you walking in His ways? Are you enjoying the access you have to God as one of His believer priests? The Lord has given you a wonderful salvation. What are you doing for the Lord? Are you serving him without sin? Are you walking with him in holiness? And I think that's the lesson, the practical lesson, that even this Old Testament minor prophet, Zechariah, has for us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.